Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Yesterday at the January 6th House Committee hearing, one central thrust of the investigation was the presence of right-wing extremist groups, groups that had been implicated in political violence across the country. Today we're going to review the evidence the committee presented and then talk about the longer arc of white nationalist violence. Long before J6 or even Charlottesville, there was the so-called Battle of Berkeley, and before that, white nationalists brought a bloody fight to the streets of Sacramento. This mob violence has been driven by increasingly organized extremists who ended up at the center of Donald Trump's rally and the botched plan to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This morning, we begin with yesterday's January 6th committee hearing, which focused on the links between right-wing extremist groups and Donald Trump. To start, I want to introduce Claudia Grisales, congressional reporter on NPR's Washington desk, who's covering the hearings. Welcome, Claudia. Thanks for having me. So, Claudia, bring us up to speed. How long have we been in this hearing process and how much longer do we have to go? Yeah, it has stretched out. There were estimates initially that it could be held in March, and it was just a month of hearings, but now we're going into month two, and we're expecting an eighth hearing now next week. And so it's pretty interesting in terms of how the panel has approached this. You can tell that they are aiming to be as thorough as they can be, if that means delaying a hearing, uh, pushing it off a week like they did this week. They will do it because they want to present a very full, comprehensive case of what they saw as a near uh, threat for democracy and that it came to a head on January 6th and that former President Trump played a very key role in fueling that attack on the Capitol. What did we learn yesterday during the hearing? Particularly, I'm interested in this December 18th meeting that was referenced in the the committee hearing. Right, right. Uh, Democrat... Uh, Jamie Raskin, who sits on the panel, he's from Maryland. He was leading uh, the hearing uh, along with Stephanie Murphy of Florida, another Democrat on the panel. And Raskin described it as a profane and heated clash. It lasted for more than six hours. There were a lot of characters involved 
in this meeting. It traveled several locations within the White House complex and involved what some would say some characters they were not happy to see. For example, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone described Sidney Powell as being in, in the meeting. This is a lawyer, a Trump ally at the time who was trying to push these false claims of election fraud. And so it, it was basically these two sides battling each other for hours over the next steps as to how this one group that included then President Trump could overturn the elections, for example, Powell, and how there was a proposal, she could be a special counsel, she could look overlook these uh, very outlandish claims that there were problems, for example, with voting machines, and, and there were suggestions to seize voting machines within these discussions that lasted more than several hours. And as Cipollone remarked, he didn't think Powell should be in charge of anything. And, and he was in this meeting at some points along with Eric Hirschman. This is another White House lawyer that was on his side. So yes, it was, as Cassidy Hutchinson, a previous witness in the previous hearing, described unhinged in capital letters, she wrote in a text message. So it's basically Trump's band of misfits versus White House lawyers arguing for, you know, what what was in evidence, which was that the election was not stolen. And then a few hours later, after this meeting in the wee hours of the morning of December 19th, Trump tweets. And what, what was why was there so much emphasis on this one tweet? Because there was concern, for example, we heard from an anonymous Twitter employee during yesterday's hearing, and this employee said that this tweet that uh, talked about this upcoming January 6th event, this rally, uh, talking about how it could be wild, that that was a call to arms. And it was heard by, for example, extremist groups. They saw that this is our moment to descend on on Washington, on the Capitol uh, later as they planned and try to seize control of this election and, and tear it away from what voters wanted to see happen, which was they had elected President Biden. Yeah. What other evidence did the committee present of Donald Trump and his administration's connections with extremist groups? Right. So the way they approached it yesterday is they looked at Trump allies and their connections. For example, controversial figure Roger Stone was very much connected to these extremists. There was a Roger Stone text group, if you will, friends of Roger Stone. There were several individuals in this group. And that is how the panel illustrated ties is that they they tied these extremists to Trump allies. Now, did they go all the way to the presidency? at the time? Did they do that in yesterday's hearing? I don't think that was quite clear. Mm -hmm. And so that remains a challenge for the panel. They keep arguing that Trump fueled the attack. He incited the mob. And part of this argument is that he had links to these insurrectionists. But I don't know that that link was clearly made Mm -hmm. yesterday. But there's several weeks, months to go for this panel in terms of uh, their final report, maybe additional hearings after next week that they may try to seek out a way to prove that point Mm -hmm. uh, if possible. We're talking about the latest news from the Jan 6 committee hearings and the rise of violent extremist groups. We're joined by Claudia Grisales, congressional reporter on NPR's Washington desk. And I want to add a couple of other experts on extremist groups. 
We have A.C. Thompson. He's a legendary reporter with ProPublica and a frontline correspondent. His investigation into the assault on the U.S. Capitol is featured in an updated version of the frontline documentary, American Insurrection. Thanks for joining us, A.C. Thanks for having me on. I also want to add in Kali Holloway, a columnist with The Nation, who's also been tracking these extremist groups. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Kali, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the extremist groups that were involved in January 6th. Um, So these are players that we've seen before, right? A lot of them were at Unite the Right in 2017. Um, the, The Proud Boys were involved. The Oath Keepers were there. Um, I mean, this is an arc that really started in terms of watching these groups become more active um, and, and seeing them really be big cheerleaders for Trump. We, we, we saw this the first time that he ran, right? I mean, a lot of these groups really started to coalesce after President Obama's uh, presidency. Um, this is a white backlash in kind of the classic sense. Um, and... Uh, you know, these groups have, we've watched them, even though there hasn't been the kind of attention that I think uh, we could have been paying to them in terms of law enforcement attention to them, because since 2009, uh, we've known that they are the greatest threat. Right wing terror is the greatest threat to uh, domestic um, tranquility, right? Um, and we've had basically 14 years of these groups not being monitored in the ways that we should have. Uh, so now we see this sort of spillover of violence. These groups, I think, um, a lot of them gave orders to stand down after uh, January 6th, and they've been getting a lot more involved in local politics, mm. um, things like school boards. Um, we've seen them show up at um, you know, drag queen story hours. Um, Steve Bannon has encouraged them to run for office. So, uh, yeah, they're involved kind of on the ground as this kind of rear guard to the kind of legislative move to the right that we've seen, to the far right that we've seen. Uh, but they're also really doing work locally mm-hmm. uh, to build some political legitimacy on the ground. And I think that's kind of the most frightening thing. Um, and we should have been paying attention to these groups uh, long before before because we we knew that they were growing in numbers and growing in strength. Let's hear a cut from the hearings of Jason Van Tattenhove, a former spokesman for the Oath Keepers, talking about the group's vision. I think we saw a glimpse of what the vision of the Oath Keepers is on January 6th. Um, It doesn't necessarily include the rule of law. It doesn't necessarily include... um, it, it includes violence. It includes trying to, to get their way through lies, through deceit, through intimidation, and through the, the perpetration of violence. The swaying of, of people who may not know better through lies and rhetoric and propaganda that can get swept up in these moments. Um, and, and I'll admit I was swept up at one point as well, too. A.C. Thompson, you spent a lot of time reporting on groups like the Oath Keepers um, and and similar kind of extremist groups. Do you think that's an accurate view of the vision of these groups for political violence as a a tool in our country? Yeah, I absolutely do. And um, I I think it's important to actually listen to them and listen to the words they're saying and take them seriously. Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, had been talking about civil war for years and years and years. He had been saying over and over again 
there's going to be a civil war. We're going to be out there. He did webinars about this. And honestly, some of my colleagues and people on my team, at times we felt like this guy's a blowhard. He always says this. He's not a particularly astute leader. So how seriously should we take him? And it turns out we should probably take him pretty seriously. When you look at groups like the Oath Keepers, they come out of a sort of earlier tradition. I think Callie referenced this um, of the Patriot movement that really goes back to the earlier 2000s and kind of came out of the Iraq and Afghanistan war period and then got updated in the Trump era and sort of turned in a slightly different direction. Um, One of the interesting things is that one of the key sort of architects of the big lie mythology and of the Dominion voting uh, machines, Mm -hmm. conspiracy theory around the election is a former Oath Keeper who was tight with Stuart Rhodes, uh, Joshua Merritt, who was also interviewed by the January 6th committee. I think you see a lot of activity of these groups involved in this whole circle. Yeah. You know, Claudia Grisales, do we expect the January 6th committee to go back to this this well and talk more about these connections between the extremist group? Because as you noted, the direct connection perhaps was was not shown in at least this particular hearing. Exactly. I would not be surprised if they did that. I think the hearing, for example, with Cassidy Hutchinson, this is the aide to then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to former President Trump. With that hearing, that was that was announced the day before. They had come across a deal where they could get this witness out in this public hearing the next day because they had been working with this witness for some time. She had changed attorneys. Everything worked out. So it's possible we could see another scenario where we have a witness that we haven't heard from yet that will make some sort of connection. And it's obvious that's where the committee wanted to go yesterday, but they didn't quite make it. And so they have months to go before they close everything up. I wouldn't be surprised if they try again. We're talking about the latest news from the January 6th committee hearings. Thank you so much for joining us, Claudia Grisales, congressional reporter on NPR's Washington desk. Great to be with you. Thank you. We're going to talk some more after the break about the rise of violent extremist groups, both in the nation as well as in California. We're going to be joined in an ongoing way by A.C. Thompson, reporter at ProPublica and Frontline, as well as Kali Holloway, a columnist at The Nation who's been tracking the rise of right-wing extremism. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the rise of violent extremist groups. It was a major point of conversation in the January 6th hearings, but we want to extend the conversation beyond those hearings. The insurrection at the Capitol was, of course, the most monumental form of political violence in this era. But the groups that we're talking about here were not just dedicated to political violence in this one instance, as we heard in the cut from the Oath Keepers. It's really part of an 
ideology of building white nationalist power through violence here in this country. And Itzy Thompson, for you, where do you start that story of these sort of modern white nationalist groups committed to political violence? That's a great question. I mean, when I was in Charlottesville, the thing that I kept hearing over and over again, and that was 2017, was we were inspired by Trump. We were motivated by Trump. He's not perfect. He's in fact, got Jews in his family, so he's definitely not perfect uh, in, to, in their minds. But he was a catalyst for us being here. And now we as white nationalist extremists are going beyond his agenda um, into a much more extremist agenda. But that he was a big motivator. I think when you, for me, looking at these things, you could see in at the time when Trump first ran for president, you could see this whole new upswelling of activism on the white nationalist front um, that took ideas from previous generations from the 80s and the 90s and updated them in this Trumpist uh, sort of framework and used the modern tools of social media to propel their message out to an audience that their forebears could like only dream of. Mm, Yeah. You know, Kali Holloway, how do you think about these different groups and their different splinter groups? And how, how do you kind of understand where they're coming from? And and I guess parse between them and maybe like legitimate political opponents who are just right wing? Um, well, I think the groups that were involved with January, or I know, um, specifically the groups that were involved with January 6th, um, because the University of Chicago did a lot of kind of, you know, study of who was there. And one of the things that they found was that the thing that they tended to share overall was that they were all uh, believers, in general, the folks that they polled in the great replacement theory, right? So the idea that um, there is a disappearance of uh, white people that is happening and that they are being replaced by Black folks or Hispanic folks. Um, And I think there is this intersection of many of these pro-Trump groups that support Trump specifically because of the kind of rhetoric that he has built around that idea uh, that their status is in peril. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, that is the point that they intersect on Um, because they have, there's, they have many divergent views, right? In some ways, this is their only overlapping point. And that's who we saw sort of come together um, in January 6th. And a lot of them, the, the other thing that the University of Chicago study found was that Many of those people um, lived in counties where they have, over the last few decades, seen a real decline in the number of white people. So there really is this fear of demographic erasure, this fear of status loss, um, this idea of a kind of, you know, hashtag white genocide that is driving so much of this. Yeah. We're talking about the rise of violent extremist groups with Callie Holloway, a columnist of The Nation, A.C. Thompson, a reporter with ProPublica and a frontline correspondent. And we want to add Lindsay Schubiner, director of the Momentum Program to counter the ascension of white nationalism at the Western State Center to the program. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We'd also like to invite you into the conversation Have you had an experience with an extremist organization? What are your thoughts 
on the rise of this kind of political violence. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, of course, or KQED Forum, or you can email forum at kqed.org. You know, Lindy Schumann, I wanted to come to you on this sort of Western or Californian uh, questions. You know, I think sometimes, particularly in the Bay Area, it can feel like this kind of white nationalist rhetoric is far away. But has your group found that it is? Unfortunately, yes. And and I think that overall, the type of white nationalist and other bigoted and anti-democracy activity that we're seeing in California tends to uh, follow trends that we're seeing uh, across the country. Um, as uh, as was mentioned previously, right, the, the Trump era uh, and Trump himself certainly really welcomed white nationalist, paramilitary, and other anti-democracy groups into the political mainstream. And, you know, the insurrection was a direct result of that. And, and uh, you know, we've also seen that, you know, the, the, the hate violence and bigoted shootings that we've seen recently are, are, are also linked to that. Um, you know, just to, to give a few examples, um, the Proud Boys have at least uh, nine active chapters in California, including in places like LA, Sacramento, uh, Modesto, Bakersfield. Um, and, um, you know, just recently in San Lorenzo, they dra- they interrupted a, a drag queen story hour um, and, you know, started uh, mm-hmm. uh, abusing attendees with uh, anti-LGBTQ slurs. Um, and that's, you know, being investigated as a hate crime. Um, we've also seen activity from uh, the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association run by Richard Mack, which is, you know, courting sheriffs and even counties to join his movement, which argues that sheriffs are the highest legal authority and that federal or state laws don't have to be obeyed. And of course, not surprisingly, they they point specifically to civil rights laws, uh, environmental and gun laws. Um, they held a, a training in Northern California in early April. Um, we also see a uh, presence from Patriot Front, a white nationalist group, um, which which have, has dropped materials in various places in, in California and um, there are also um, certain paramilitary or, or militia groups that are active. Yeah. You know, AC, for your documentary, uh, American Insurrection and other reporting, you know, the, uh, you, you know these California groups quite well. And I just keep thinking when I, when I see footage of January 6th, I can't help but think of, you know, this basically knife fight in Sacramento uh, mm-hmm. in in September in uh, 2016 and then you know the sort of battle of Berkeley in 2017 you know the the violence and the shock and the chaos but also these elements of kind of ridiculousness that were introduced um, when when we think about the groups that were involved and the people who are involved here in in Northern California are they are they united in white nationalism or are are there some other ideologies that are powering some of these things Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one thing that I should point out is that every time I get on a plane to go to one of these big rallies and stop the steel rally or Charlottesville or something like that, and I leave the Bay Area and fly to the rally, there's all these people from California on the plane with me going to the rally. And they're not going to cover it. They're going to participate in it. 
And so people in California should get it out of their heads that this is happening just in other places. It's definitely our problem. I would say that you see a sort of spectrum of ideologies. And I think the notion of the great replacement theory being like a kind of overarching motivating idea is a good one. But you see these different ideologies. You see people who are fixated on um, the QAnon conspiracy theories. You see people who are fixated on the notion uh, of creeping Sharia law and that Muslims are secretly trying to take over the U.S. You see people who are fixated on denying uh, the LGBTQ community their rights. And then you see people who are fixated on the militia stuff, and it's all about guns for them. But they all sort of come together and can get together at these rallies, Mm -hmm. the insurrection, and push a kind of common agenda on certain issues. Yeah. You know, when I hear these things, um, Callie Holloway, I can't help but think of the profusion of online conspiracies and kind of extreme positions that people end up taking. Can you talk a little bit about that? These are not just online groups, but there's this kind of hybrid offline online organizing that you've been tracking. Yeah. And this has been, I mean, it's been going on for, for so long. It's, it's kind of astounding. Um, I think this is kind of the bubbling up of stuff Mm -hmm. that we've seen for a very long time. I mean, there were conversations about what was happening um, online back in 2008, 2009, right? Which is when we first see someone like Richard Spencer talking about the alt-right um, and kind of recruiting people to the idea through, through you know, whatever online means he was using. A lot, a lot of this was happening in plain sight. Um, they were using mainstream um, outlets, uh, you know, Twitter and uh, Facebook, which obviously both only grew in terms of the number of su- subscribers in subsequent years. Um, you know, there was a lot of kind of what I think was called troll activity at that point. Um, a lot of abuse toward people online who were maybe espousing ideas related to, you know, any kind of progressive uh, feminism or, you know, those folks were getting heaped with abuse and could have talked about it at that point. Um, But I I think that we really started to see it coalesce um, and become a lot more dangerous and toxic when things like the manosphere, um, which really is kind of a broad overarching term for a lot of these places uh, where they were really gaining traction. And, uh, you know, obviously places like Reddit and 4chan, uh, which, you know, really allowed kind of this culture to fester. Um, and I think that there's only a hop, skip, and a jump from uh, these, you know, sort of very anti uh, and statedly and explicitly <laughs> very um, a- anti uh, women, anti LGBT, LGBT folks, LG, um, I'm sorry, um, black folks, uh, folks that they perceive as a threat to their status, you know, that sort of conversation, what's happening. And there wasn't a lot that was it was considered free speech and and to do anything about it was um you know infringing on their rights and uh it kind of took over this toxic culture and it led to what i think ultimately is a lot of this um you know sites where there's online what we're often talking about is online radicalization happening mm-hmm. um, but there's a really direct arc from 
of that start to folks sort of filtering in even into more dangerous spaces where they are really getting indoctrinated into these far right ideas and, and getting politicized in a different way than maybe they initially entered. Yeah. AC, you know, uh, Walter writes in to ask, who are the leaders of these groups and what are their backgrounds? Do the majority have military training? Yesterday's hearing mentioned that one of these groups advertised themselves as a veterans outreach program. Mm. Are there ties to our military? I know it's something that you've covered extensively. Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, he, he's referencing the, the statements about the Oath Keepers uh, from yesterday's hearing. And, and with the Oath Keepers and the three percenters in particular, like they really targeted former military, uh, former law enforcement with this pitch that's like, hey, it's your patriotic duty to stand up to creeping tyranny in this country uh, as we define that and that we're going to help push you into a new heroic uh, valorous mission that's been missing from your life since you left the service or you left uh, law enforcement. And that's really sort of was their focus, you know, with uh, those groups, you know, with Stuart Rhodes really has been the, the sort of guy behind the Oath Keepers. The Three Percenters Militia Group is a much more decentralized sort of network of different militia chapters. When you look at the Proud Boys, the Proud Boys are super interesting because they have survived January 6th in a way that the other groups have not, that they have mm. actually thrived in the aftermath. And I think that's because they really don't have a single unified command. They are decentralized chapters that do their own thing and um, continue to be very active and um, engaged. So it's a, it's a mix. Some of these are very top-down groups. Some of them are sort of uh, more membership local driven. Yeah. Um, Lindsay Schubiner, I wanted to toss you this uh, comment from Susan, who writes, one of the main groups that the far-right conspiracy theorists are focused on are Jews. Please don't erase us by not mentioning that we, too, are a focus of hate and derision by the white bigots. When this is done, the wide population thinks that anti-Semitism doesn't really exist. And I just wanted you to talk about the, the way that anti-Semitism does inform and, and unite some of these groups. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, anti-Semitism is a core part of white nationalist ideology, uh, you know, along with other forms of, of racism and bigotry. Um, and I think one way that it specifically plays out really visibly is uh, through the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, um, which, you know, we've, we've already talked about and which is um, so significantly present in white nationalists and other bigoted and anti-democracy organizing today. Um, and, you know, that's a conspiracy that, you know, blames Jews um, for orchestrating the supposed replacement of white people for encouraging immigration um, to this country by people of color. And, uh, and, you know, and, and also, you know, relies deeply on anti-Blackness. Um, and that's, uh, you know, a lot, that's a conspiracy theory along with many other conspiracy theories that um, take as sort of inspiration some of the, you know, original uh, conspiracy theories uh, about uh, Jews and, and based on anti-Semitism that go back to the, uh, you know, false uh, protocols of the elders of Zion. Um, 
So I, I think that's a really good question and an important point mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. about uh, some of the ideologies and, and forms of bigotry that are um, that are informing these movements today. Let's bring in uh, first call Tim from San Francisco. Welcome, Tim. Hey, good morning. Um, I just wanted to um, tell you uh, just a little bit of my experience. I'm a 50 year old gay man. Um, and I work construction and I, I've been at my job for 20 years. And one of the things that I noticed with my coworkers is they were extremely docile and didn't really care about politics at all. And then when Trump began to rise, their interest in politics rose exponentially. And one of the things that also rose with it was um, just blatant, outright homophobia and racism, just the stuff that they would say out loud uh, went from being very coded to being very, um, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the word is, overt. Maybe. Blunt. Yeah. Um, blunt, thank you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good word. And can I just tell you one of my experiences uh, with this so that you understand um, as a gay man, um, I have a coworker that I actually thought was a friend of mine thought, and I'll put that in quotes. And I used to have beers with him and it was fine. And we would joke around and this wasn't very long ago. Um, and if I'm going to use a word that will probably need to be censored, but I need to say it just so that you understand the impact of this. So I was talking to my coworker and I said, you know, um, Hey, John, uh, what are you doing this weekend? Just kind of like throwing it out there. Just curious, not really, you know, just looking for, um, no, I'm not too sure what, whatever the response was going to be. And his response to me, and he, he phrased it as a joke. He said, oh, I'm going to go lynch me some faggots. And that's the type of language oh, that is being thrown around. Yeah. So um, I just want to let you know it's still there. It's still present. And the only solution is if we start to monitor um, social media and find the social media companies like Facebook and Twitter when they are promoting these white nationalist um, ideologies. Hey, Tim, I can hear the music. Yeah, off, Tim, so stick you. with us. We're about to go into the break. I'm so sorry that happened. And, and thank you for sharing that with us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more right after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We're talking about the rise of right-wing extremist groups. We're joined by A.C. Thompson, a reporter with ProPublica and Frontline Correspondent, made a documentary called American Insurrection, which you can stream on Frontline's website. It's very good. Uh, we also are joined by Callie Holloway, a columnist at The Nation, and Lindsay Schubiner, director of the Momentum Program to counter the ascension of white nationalism at the Western State Center. You know, before the break... We heard this sort of heinous story that Tim told us about a bigoted coworker, and the way that this coworker expressed that bigotry was sort of in a joke. 
right? This sort of joke format. And Kelly, I wanted you to talk maybe a little bit about that because it feels like one of the distinct forms of this um, racism, bigotry, white supremacy of this round sort of incorporated this kind of jokey internet vibe to it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that that comes up because the founder of the Proud Boys, Gavin McInnes, is is kind of one of the people who I think was really key to that kind of, um, at, at, it was called at the time sort of hipster racism, right? But this kind of um, online, uh, it's not in real life, so it doesn't really matter. So if I'm saying terrible, abusive things to you, um, it doesn't really count as if there is um, this intense de- demarcation between our online lives and our offline lives. Um, you know, there was a lot of the, I think memes were a really big part of the rise of uh, what I think was the alt-right and what has now become some of this more um, offline uh, right-wing mm-hmm. political action that we've seen. Um, th- they were very aware of um, sort of the power of of memes um, and would deploy um, the, a, a million memes uh, when they were going after folks. Um, you know, in places like 4chan. I mean, I mean, those are also places that gave us some of our most memorable memes, right? But um, it was also a kind of a hub for the creation of this kind of smirky mm-hmm. um, right wing, you know, in places like our Trump or B-board, um, these really, really toxic and, and ultimately frightening for a lot of us um, you know, imagery and jokes that were happening that that indicated something a lot deeper and a lot more dangerous. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, Mike from San Francisco. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just wondered if the guests could talk about the fact that for, for myself and most of the people I know, none of this is really new. And it, it feels like a lot of kind of neoliberal hand-wringing that no amount of yard signs and you know, January 6th committees are going to do anything about. And I wonder, like, the infiltration of the police and judicial system goes as far back as the Ku Klux Klan, and nobody's doing anything about it. And I I just wonder if they could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, hey, Mike in San Francisco, thank you for that. You know, AC Thompson, why don't you talk about this? This two things come out of that question uh, from Mike, I think. One is talk about the infiltration of law enforcement by members of these right wing extremist groups. And two, what's different about these white nationalist groups from their you know, forerunners in the, the Ku Klux Klan or the John Birch Society, whoever the other kind of groups that you want to want to choose as forerunners? Right. Yeah. So let, let's start with the second question first. I think the new part is that they tried to stage a coup and 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 uh, stop the peaceful transfer of power of the country. So I feel like that's a new thing. Like that's absolutely yes. a yes. new development. Um, and, and I think that there definitely like there was a tailing off in the energies of these movements to some extent um, in d- before Trump came to power. You had this you had the 90s, um, the 80s white power movements that were quite big. You had the the 90s militia movements that were sort of uh, epitomized by Tim McVeigh that were quite big and then dropped off. 
Then you had another boom after um, Obama came into pre- came, became president, and you had the an upwelling of uh, right wing activity, extreme right wing activity. And now I think, like in the Trump era, there was a whole nother level of that. It was at another level, absolutely. Yeah. And for sure, there's many, many historical precedents, and there's many ways that it ties back to the history of this country. But you can see these different iterations, and you can see like a, a, a ramping up of intensity in many ways. Um, you know, I think one of the things to think about with law enforcement is what we've seen are we know that there were police officers and retired police officers who were at January 6th. We know that there are law enforcement uh, officers across the country who tend to evince sympathy for positions like for groups like the Oath Keepers or three percenters. And they they tend to, uh, they often will express these kind of pro-militia, super hardcore Second Amendment, super conservative, radical conservative views. I think that there's a lot of investigative reporters and investigators who've been looking to find the really hardcore white nationalists lurking within police departments and other law enforcement agencies. And we haven't fully seen that come out. What we've seen come out more is involvement of those types of groups and those types of activists in, in the military. You know, when, Stephen Carrillo, the Air Force staff sergeant here in Northern California, uh, killed two law enforcement personnel. He was an active duty airman at a base in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at his social network on Facebook, there were you know at least 20 other Air Force members who were posting similar anti-government, uh, boogaloo boys, militia type ideas online. You know, in my own reporting, I found 20 current or former military members who were in the Boogaloo anti-government militia movement. Thank you for that, AC. Let's bring in another call, Susie in Sunnyvale, California. Welcome. Um, Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can, Susie. Go ahead. Good. Um, I want to say something one of your prior callers said Mm -hmm. made me just like really light up my husband of 20 years was never involved in politics and in the lead up to trump the election with trump he started listening to crap on the on the internet and started to think that he had like secret information and um that he was like um we're, we're now going through a divorce and and it was just like so bizarre because he he felt like he um, was enlightened about things that nobody else knew, and and it, and he didn't have the ability to evaluate the credibility of the sources. And so when he would, you know, I'd say, please tell me what you're listening to. What you know, what's shaping your opinion? And he would share these clips and videos and things with me, and and I would. To me, they weren't valid, mm. but because he hasn't been a person that listened to that stuff, also he's not as educated as I am. Um, but it was so difficult for me because I didn't want to disrespect him, but he was just sucked up through the, you know, their messaging. So it was 
it led to the, partly led to our divorce. Yeah. What was it like watching someone you know that well, 20 years of marriage, kind of go down one of these rabbit holes? And did you, did other people that he knew try and pull him out too? Yeah, well, I want to say at the same time, we had some two daughters who are now, uh, they were in their late teens, so they were going through all of their education and, and knowledgeable because of their schooling and then listening to his opinions and questioning him. And, and he would mm. blow them off because he didn't have a valid response. So the three of us were like, we love him dearly. And yet it was, we just completely got separated from him. It was very terrible. Mm. Man, I'm sorry to hear that, Susie. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for sharing that experience. I I wanted to go to you, Lindsay Schubiner, on this. I mean, you know, we don't know anything about Susie's husband beyond what we've just heard. But this path that some people end up on, find themselves watching videos on the internet, and then as someone who appeared at the January 6th committee hearing yesterday, the guy kind of sounded like, yeah, I just kind of ended up here somehow, you know? What do we know about people who start walking down that path and what can be done to bring them back? That's a really good question. And, you know, the what what that, you know, awful story that we just heard made me think about is, the real significance of conspiracy theories of uh, you know a variety of different types and their significance uh, in the current moment that we're in, right? We've seen them sort of spread like wildfire and serve as a real accelerant for white nationalist and other uh, uh, really you know bigoted uh, viewpoints. And and those social movements that are organizing around, uh, you know, those dangerous ideologies and, you know, conspiracy theories are are something uh, that are really hard to tackle. We although we did um, Western State Center published a a toolkit called um, Confronting Conspiracy Theories and Organized Bigotry at Home, and it's a guide for parents and caregivers. It's specifically focused on younger people who may be influenced by conspiracy theories or bigotry, other things that they're, you know, uh, seeing on the internet or hearing um, from their friends. And I, I realize that's that's different from an adult, right? But a lot of what we advise is um, for parents and caregivers to maintain the connection with those young people, mm-hmm. ask questions um, to the extent possible, non-judgmentally. Um, to, you know, hopefully before this happens, really emphasize and focus on, you know, digital literacy skills and understanding information, which is a a role that schools can play really significantly. Um, And then, you know, emphasizing, um, you know, hopefully family or or, or shared values of um, equity and inclusion of, um, you know, the value of of all human life, of um, respecting other people, um, and uh, and sort of serving as a as a place where those young people can come to uh, to talk through questions that they have and and what they're hearing in the in the hopes that um, those uh, parents or caregivers can be a you know a sounding board to you know reflect back positive values um, 
of inclusion and, and equity and, and hope that they'll, you know, bring themselves out of it. But it's a, it's a very, very difficult uh, challenge. When I start, uh, I want to get to some of these comments that have been coming in. Greg writes, President Trump has played to the extremist groups ever since he became a candidate. He discovered he could not only gain voters with certain conservative views, but that at some point he realized that they could be put to use. He encouraged them to break the law all over the country, like encouraged them to break into the Michigan Capitol, and eventually he decided to obstruct our last national election. That conduct is aiding and abetting in any criminal book. And one of the things that Greg is gesturing towards is that this type of thinking got mainstreamed through the Trump candidacy and, and presidency, which sort of differentiates it from some of the, the older movements, which other commenters also wanted to address. A listener tweets, a classmate of mine interned and did research for California rep Edward Roybal back in 1988 on the separatist, racist, violent groups. White extremists seem to be acceptable, provided they don't try to spark civil war, and even then not going to be punished as traitors for January 6th. Another listener tweets, it's saddening for the last 40 years in California. Some of us have been fighting these groups, warning of their rise, only to have our fears made fun of and told that we were crazy. Well, here we are. Will you listen now? Kelly, I want to start with you, Kelly Holloway, uh, columnist with The Nation. Now that these views have been both mainstreamed, but then gone through this January 6th kind of uh, implosion, where do we go from here? <laughs> like, what what are we supposed to do at this point now that this has sort of been this kind of political violence has been unleashed? Um, well, you know, I always like to give myself context for the moment that we're in. Right. And we are really in the throes of certainly the most um, sort of far reaching and intense white backlash that I have in my lifetime. Um, there are contemporaneous white backlashes happening sort of all the time. But I, I really do believe that we are seeing something that, in terms of looking back at history, the only comparison that I can find is the white backlash that toppled Reconstruction. <laughs> um, and that's really where we are. And understanding what that looked like, the kind of historical revision that happened afterwards, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the way that the process has looked. I mean, look, authoritarians um, tell people not to believe their eyes. Donald Trump ran with the idea that there was uh, fake news and there was no reliable source for your information. And this is what Stop the Steal is about, right? If if democracy doesn't work, if your vote doesn't count, it's another way to just sort of sow the seeds of discord and confusion. Um, and so in, in the midst of this, I think, you know, people look for someone to guide them. And that's, you know, this particular round of the white lash, white backlash or, or white lash actually um, has kind of made them their leader or their icon. It's very similar to a cult. But also, you know, I've done a lot of time looking back at what those prior white backlashes look like, particularly the one after uh, the toppled reconstruction. And, you know, just kind of making sure that we stay grounded in history. We realize this is a circular phenomenon. We avoid attempts that are happening even right now. And that started pretty much in the days after January 6th uh, to immediately start revising what we saw with our own eyes, uh, claiming that it was Antifa. Um, you know, kind of recognizing that there has always been this infiltration of law enforcement and that we do need to be keeping our eyes on these groups. I mean, 
we could have started in 2006 when the FBI put out a paper talking about white supremacist infiltration, uh, but we didn't, right? Um, and so hopefully I think there's much more uh, monitoring going on. I hope that people are sort of uh, who, folks who are kind of aware of where we are and, and kind of the danger of it and the fact that it's very likely to get worse before it gets better, not to sound pessimistic, but you know, the, the history as precedent, um, just you know, an awareness of where we're going and just how big of a threat to all of our democratic norms this is and what we could slide into if, if we don't, yeah. if we aren't careful and thoughtful. AC, where does your kind of deep investigative reporting brain go in this period? Like where are you kind of digging in now so that in a year we'll have the facts that we need? You know, I'm I'm so interested in in what the next wave of groups and what the next wave of sort of militant extremist activism is going to be, you know, and, and what that'll look like. And I think here in California, you know, in Danville, we had a White Lives Matter rally recently. We've had the militia groups, our militia sort of activists in the North Bay who allegedly were plotting to blow up a Democratic office building. We have Shasta and Oroville that are really tied up in these extremist politics. We have um, groups like the Crew uh, 562, which is a neo-Nazi white supremacist group out of Southern California that's gotten active. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of fascinated and disturbed and interested in what comes next with these groups and what that's going to look like. We've been talking about the rise of violent extremist groups, this new generation, with A.C. Thompson, a reporter at ProPublica and frontline correspondent. Check out his doc, American Insurrection. Callie Holloway, columnist at The Nation. Lindsay Schubiner of the Western State Center. And earlier we were joined by Claudia Grisales, a congressional reporter on NPR's Washington desk. Thank you all so much for joining us, providing this context for uh, yesterday's J6 hearings. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. 
New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.